This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. <clears throat> well, it has been such a blessing to, to walk through the epic life of David and see all of the applications for our own lives and also see how David's life is pointing to the ultimate son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about today, pointing to a greater king. As we finish our series on David today, we're going to see again how his life time and time again points to, foreshadows the ministry of the ultimate son of David, the Lord Jesus, our Savior and King. So turn to chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, and we'll, we'll begin there. I'm going to be looking at just different parts of the back half of 2 Samuel today as we think about the theme, pointing to a greater king. So last week, we looked at the darkest episode in the life of David. It was an episode that involved both adultery and murder. And we saw that God forgave David, but there was also fallout that came from that sin. Sin has consequences, and we're going to see that. But what we're also going to see are just beautiful pictures of gospel hope as well. So we begin there with sin, consequences, and hope. So after Nathan confronted David about his sin, which we looked at last week, Nathan prophesied that there were going to be two painful consequences of David's sin. And we see the first in chapter 12 and verses 11 and 12. So if you would look there, beginning with verse 11, this is Nathan speaking, and he says to David, this is what the Lord says, I am going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. Now, this prophecy was fulfilled in a shocking, scandalous way. And to kind of give you the, the context for it, so David had many wives and concubines. This in itself is a problem. When it, this was not God's plan. God's plan, as we see in, in Genesis 1 and 2, was one man and one woman in a monogamous union of marriage for life, till death do us part. And so when you see these patriarchs and kings in the Old Testament practicing polygamy, that is not God's plan. And whenever it happens, you see pain and family dysfunction that come along with that. And so it was in the case of David. So one of David's 
daughters by one wife was named Tamar, and then his son by another wife was named Amnon, and Amnon was filled with lust for his half-sister Tamar. And so he schemes and manipulates so that he can get her alone, and when he does, Amnon brutally rapes his half-sister Tamar. And by the way, both last week and this week, we're seeing how women were treated in this ancient Near Eastern context. Not good. And even today, the more that you go east, and when you go into cultures that do not have a Christian history and a Christian heritage, you see that the treatment of women is, 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 is worse in those cultures because they don't have a Christian heritage. Listen, Jesus elevated the dignity and the value of women far beyond what it had ever been in any culture. It was absolutely revolutionary. And so it was Christianity that, that gave to women um, that sense of, of, of dignity and value as, as human beings. But um, in, this, in this ancient Near Eastern uh, culture and in many cultures today, unfortunately, there are things like sexual abuse and rape that happen and, and, and there's barely an eyebrow that is raised. And what happens here after, after Amnon rapes Tamar, not only is he not prosecuted, but he's not even disciplined. David hears about it and he's furious, but there is no indication of any serious discipline of of Amnon for this horrific thing that he has done. But another of David's sons, Tamar's full brother, Absalom, is quietly seething at what had happened to his sister, and he is just waiting for the opportunity to exact his revenge. And so he waits until the time is right and then he murders his half-brother, Amnon. Well, after that, Absalom goes into hiding for three years. Finally, David allows him to come back to Jerusalem, back to the palace. What David doesn't understand, though, is that he is bringing back a snake. In the 16th century, Niccolo Machiavelli wrote a book called The Prince. And The Prince is basically a manual for how to gain political power through deception and treachery. I think that Machiavelli got some ideas from Absalom. <laughs> because Absalom is a Machiavellian figure if there ever was one. The moment that David brings him back to the palace... Absalom begins to scheme, and he begins to quietly turn the hearts of people against his father. And when the time is right, Absalom launches full-scale mutiny and rebellion against his father. Now, eventually, the rebellion was put down. Absalom was, was, was killed. But at first... 
it was incredibly successful. In fact, it was so successful that David and his forces had to flee Jerusalem. And Absalom and the rebels came in, took over Jerusalem temporarily. And when they did that, this is when Absalom does something that was just incredibly outrageous. So when he left Jerusalem, David had left behind ten of his concubines. So concubines, again, this is so messed up, but concubines were like secondary wives. They were wives of a secondary status. And David had these concubines, and, and, and they, were, they were tasked with providing even more male heirs, uh, even more sexual gratification, and to take care of palace duties. And so when David is forced to abandon Jerusalem, he leaves ten of his concubines behind to take care of the palace. Well, when Absalom comes in, Absalom pitches a tent on top of the palace and he makes it clear to everyone in Jerusalem that he is sleeping with his father's concubines. And thus the fulfillment of Nathan's first prophecy. The second prophecy we see in chapter 12 and verses 13 and 14. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Now listen, we should never, ever assume that when tragic things happen in the lives of people, you know, like the death of a child, that, you know, this is like the direct result of some sin that they have, have committed. Um, in John 9, Jesus has to get his disciples straight on this point because they come across the man who was born blind. And his disciples ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because their thinking went along with the thinking of the day that, you know, when tragic things like this happen, you know, it's the direct result of some sin, you know, that you've committed and Jesus responds to them by basically saying you guys don't have a clue what you're talking about he Jesus says neither this man nor his parents sinned this happened so that the glory of God might be displayed in other words God is doing something deeper that you can't possibly understand and that was the case here in the death of of, of David and Bathsheba's um, infant infant son God was doing something bigger than they could even understand at that point. Now listen, we have seen again and again and again how David's life points to Christ and foreshadows aspects of the gospel. And so it is with this. Tim Chester says this about it. It's a pointer to the cross. David sinned and deserved to die but someone else died in his place. Not only that, but it was David's son who died. And one day, the ultimate son born to David's line, Jesus, would die for the sins of the world. Why do we see the sinless 
Son of God, hanging on a cross. It's because of our sins. We were the ones who deserved to die, just like David. Remember after Nathan confronted David? We saw it last week. He tells David the story, this outrageous story, and David responds by saying, the man who did this deserves to die. He was right. David deserved to die, but he doesn't. His son dies instead. We deserve to die, but the Son of God died in our place. It's a picture of substitution, sacrifice. There's something else here that we need to understand from the story, and that is this. When a little one dies, an infant, a little child, Scripture is clear that they go to be immediately into the arms of God in heaven. Now we see this here. For, for seven days, this little baby clung to life. And while the baby was still alive, David was beside himself. He laid out prostrate. He refused to be comforted. He refused to eat and drink. He was so distraught that when the child died, his advisors were afraid to tell him. They were afraid that he would do something desperate, like take his own life. But on the seventh day, the baby dies, and David sees his counselors whispering to one another. He figures out what's going on. He says, did the baby die? They tell him yes. And David shocks them. David, David gets up off the floor. He, he, he gets himself something to eat. He goes and he worships. In other words, he's, he's going on with life. And his advisors were stunned by, by, by this. And David said, no, while the child was still alive, I wept, I fasted, I, I prayed. But now the child has died. And then this is what he says. Look at chapter 12 and verse 23. But now that he is dead... Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he will never return to me. Now those four words, I'll go to him. When saved loved ones have gone to be with the Lord, if you are in Christ, one day you will go to them. You'll be together again. The goodbye that we say here is a temporary one. And for those of you who have lost little ones, you will hold them again in heaven. Now, I want us to look at another beautiful picture of hope in the midst of the fallout from all of this sin. It's in chapter 15. Turn to chapter 15. We talked about the fact that Absalom's rebellion was so successful at first that David and his forces had to leave Jerusalem. But as they are walking out of the city of Jerusalem, there's something really beautiful that we, that we see. Let's look at chapter 15 and verses 17 and 18. So the king set out, and all the people followed him. 
they stopped at the last house while all his servants marched past him. Then all the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and the people of Gath, 600 men who came with him from there, marched past the king. Now, do you remember Gath? Gath was the hometown of Goliath. That was Philistine territory. Gath was filled with a bunch of idol-worshiping pagans. Here's the beautiful thing. These people have come to know the one true God. Right? They have come to Jerusalem. Uh, they are believers in Yahweh. They are loyal to David. And so we see here just a beautiful picture of conversion and missions and, and, and the least likely people who are in love with the Lord and so, so loyal to David. One of them was named Ittai. And look at what it says in verses 19 and, and, and 20 here. The king said to Ittai of Gath, why are you also going with us? Go back and stay with the new king, since you're both a foreigner and an exile from your homeland. Besides, you only arrived yesterday. Should I make you wander around with us today while I go wherever I can? Go back and take your brothers with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. In other words, David is saying to him, hey, you don't owe me anything. <laughs> we're being forced to flee the city. I don't even know where we're going from here. I don't even know what's going to happen. You don't owe me anything, right? Why are you, why are you so loyal to, to, to me? I, I'm not deserving of this. Notice what Ittai says to David, verse 21. This is so powerful. But in response, Ittai vowed to the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king is, whether it means life or death, your servant will be there. Wow. Oh, what a picture that is of what our loyalty should be to our king, <laughs> to King Jesus. Lord, wherever you lead, I'll go. <laughs> whether it means life or death, you are my king. You are my Lord. I am all yours. I am, I am not leaving you. I am with you all the way, life or death, whatever it means. You are my king. You are my Lord. Praise God. What a picture of what the Christian life should be about here. And, and there's, there's a picture here of the fact that sometimes, you know, the least likely people just end up loving the Lord so much. I mean, these, these people from Gath, like Ittai, they're showing David and David's God more loyalty than so many of the people in Israel. In fact, if you look back at, chapter, at, at verse 13 of chapter 15, it says, Then an informer came to David and reported, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So many of his own people had bugged out, joined the mutiny. But these outsiders, you know, these former pagans, just show such a love for the Lord and such a loyalty to, to, 
to, to David. Um, now again, this foreshadows the ministry of Christ because when you read the four gospels, sometimes who are the people who show the most love for Jesus, the most loyalty to him as their king? It's the outsiders, right? John 1 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The people that tended to flock to Jesus were the outsiders, Gentiles, Samaritans, prostitutes, tax collectors, the people who were looked down upon, women. They showed such intense love for Jesus, so much more in many cases than his own people. And so look, there's a message here. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what's in your past. There is no sin so deep that his grace is not deeper still. We just saw a picture in Christian baptism. When people are lowered beneath that water, they are raised up to walk in newness of life. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Whatever your background, whatever your coming situation you're coming from, I want to tell you, there is new life in Christ, new beginnings in Christ. We see that here in Ittai and these, these others, these outsiders who have come to know the one true and living God. The second thing that we see here are some portraits of sacrifice. Portraits of sacrifice. There's some beautiful things in chapters 23 and 24. Turn to chapter 23. So the situation here in chapter 23 is that Israel is at war with the Philistines. David is once again in a cave. <laughs> We've seen him in caves before. He's once again in a cave, and he's in a cave without any natural supply of water. So he's incredibly thirsty. And so one day, David just kind of like muses out loud, you know, oh, what I wouldn't do right now for a drink of water from the well at Bethlehem. It's not an order. <laughs> I mean, he's just kind of daydreaming out loud. I mean, there are two problems with that. One is that, you know, Bethlehem was like 12 or 13 miles from that cave, a round trip of like 25 miles. The other thing was that the Philistines were occupying Bethlehem at that point. So it's not any kind, it's not an order. He's just kind of daydreaming. He's, he's uh, Bethlehem was his hometown, right? That's where Jesus is going to be born again, foreshadowing. Bethlehem is where he had grown up as a boy. He had drank from that well so many times growing up. And David just says out loud, you know, what he's thinking. Oh, if I could only right now just have a drink of that water from the well at Bethlehem. Well, David underestimated how some of these guys... <laughs> some of these warriors that were around him, how much they loved him. So three of them overhear what David says, and they say, let's do it, let's go. So three of them take off, 
journey, make that long journey to Bethlehem, somehow break through the Philistine line, get water for David, break back through the line, and then make the long journey back to the cave. And they present this water from the well at Bethlehem to David. Now David's response to this is priceless. Look at verses 16 and 17 in chapter 23. So three of the warriors broke through the Philistine camp and drew water from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. They brought it back to David, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord. David said, Lord, I would never do such a thing. Is this not the blood of men who risked their lives? So he refused to drink it. Now at first, you're, you're like, you want to throttle David because these guys did all of this and they bring it back and you're not going to drink it. But like that misses the point. Because what David is saying here, he is saying, I am unworthy of this kind of love. I mean, these guys risked their lives. This water is like their blood. And I am unworthy of such love. And so what does he do? He pours it out before the only one who is worthy. And once again, we see a foreshadowing of the ministry of Christ. What happens just a few days before Jesus goes to the cross? He's having dinner in this home. This woman comes in whose life has been utterly transformed by his love. She comes in and she is holding in her hands the most valuable thing that she has. I mean, something that was just worth a fortune. It was the most valuable thing she had, a family heirloom. It's this jar of incredibly expensive ointment, nard, pure nard. And she comes in and she breaks it open and pours it out upon Christ. She pours it out upon the one whose blood was going to be poured out for her in just a few days. So again, there's a foreshadowing here of of Christ. Now turn to chapter 24. Let's look at one more. We see it in the last chapter of 2 Samuel. So the situation here is that David has ordered, sinfully ordered, a census to be taken of his army. Now, it's not that a census is inherently wrong. There were times when God ordered that a census be taken. The book of Numbers is named after uh, the counting that was done in a census that, that God had, had ordered. So the census wasn't inherently wrong, but it was wrong in this case because David's motive in taking it was messed up. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know his motive was wrong. It could have been that he wanted to glory in the size of his army. 
It could have been that he wanted them counted because he was getting ready to use the army for a military operation that God had not sanctioned. We don't know exactly what it was, but it it seems here that David is putting his trust in numbers rather than the Lord. And his his old army commander, Joab, senses this and tells him, In chapter 24 and verse 3, uh, Joab says to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times more than they are while my Lord the king looks on. But why does my Lord the king want to do this? You know, Joab is like, David, don't you remember all the times that we have been outnumbered in the past? And God just came through for us over and over and over again. Quit focusing on the numbers. Focus on the Lord. But David just forges ahead with the census. But then almost immediately after doing so, he's convicted of the wrongness of it. We see in verse 10, David's conscience troubled him after he had taken the census of the troops. He said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly. And what I've done, now Lord, because I've been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. And God does forgive him, but once again there's fallout. And the fallout comes in the form of a plague. And people are dying. And so in verse 17, David comes before the Lord. It says, when David saw the angel striking the people, he said to the Lord, look, I am the one who sinned. I am the one who has done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's family. So we see David's shepherd heart here, don't we? He's like, let me, let me bear it. I'm the one who's responsible for, for, for this. And again, foreshadowing of Jesus, the great shepherd. John 10, 11, what does Jesus say there? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Look at verse 18 here, chapter 24. Gad came to David that day and said to him, go up and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. So Gad is a prophet He's giving David a word from the Lord. He tells David, you're to, you're, to, you're to buy this threshing floor, the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite, Jerusalem. And you're to erect an altar there and make a sacrifice that God would stop this plague. Now let's stop right there because there's something mind-blowing about this. The threshing floor that the prophet told David to buy and to make a sacrifice on that the plague might stop, that was also called Mount Moriah. What happened at Mount Moriah in Genesis 22? That was the place, the very place, this threshing floor was the exact spot where God had told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And as Abraham's hand is raised with knife in hand, the angel of the Lord intervenes, stops Abraham, and Abraham looks down. And what does he see? He sees this ram, this lamb, caught by its horns in a thicket. 
and this animal is offered, this lamb is offered in place of Isaac. So Isaac's life is spared because of the sacrifice of another. And we are spared because of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, after this, David goes to buy this threshing floor so he can set up this altar to sacrifice. And so he goes to the owner, Arauna, and we see it beginning in verse 21. David approaches Arauna to buy the threshing floor, and Arauna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David replied, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord so that the plague of the people may be halted. Arauna said to David, my Lord, the king may take whatever he wants and offer it. Here are the oxen for a burnt offering and the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arauna gives everything here to the king. Then he said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. In other words, Arauna is like, you take, I'm giving this to you, everything, everything you need. I'm going to give you this threshing floor. I'm going to give you everything that you need to make these sacrifices. I'm going to give all of this to you as my, as my king. But how does David respond to that? So powerful. Verse 24, the king answered Arauna, no. I insist on buying it from you for a price, for I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David understands that a faith that costs nothing is worth nothing. And he knows that his Lord is worth everything. Now here's something else that's incredible. This is mind-blowing. So after this happens, and the plague does stop, after this happens, this site, this threshing floor, becomes like a holy site. So when it's time for David's son Solomon to build the temple, Solomon builds the temple on this very spot in Jerusalem. And in that temple, hundreds of thousands of lambs are going to be offered as sacrifices. But you know, not one of them could stop the plague of sin and death. They could only point to the one who could. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins we might live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed Jesus saw the plague of sin and death hanging over our heads and he said put it on me put it on me the one who had no sin became sin for us died on the cross and then he rose from the dead on the third day that we might have eternal life. And again, what a picture here of the gospel. Tim Chester 
says this, Jerusalem was spared after a plague of three days. And after three days, Jesus rose from the dead. The judgment of God fell on Jesus and extinguished the life of Jesus. But three days later, the judgment was gone. Your judgment is gone if you put yourself in his hands. Your judgment is gone if you put yourself in his hands. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being able to walk through this epic life of David that just points to a greater king, to the king of kings, our Lord Jesus. Lord, may our loyalty, our complete allegiance and trust be to our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the new life that we have in, in Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you that his precious blood was poured out for us that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. And Lord, we see that pictured so beautifully in the Lord's Supper. And so as we prepare to take it right now, Lord, we pray that you would deal with our hearts. We pray that the, the beauty of the gospel Christ's sacrifice just might be placarded before our eyes. Lord, would you use these next few minutes to minister deeply to our hearts as we take part in the supper that you ordained. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.